Welcome to Hot of the Cloud by Cloud on Out. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. And our weekly show is all about the latest AWS news and uh, our recent experiences with building on AWS. On top of that, we are answering your questions at the end of the show. So use the hashtag AskCloudOnOut on Twitter or send us the direct message via LinkedIn. Or in case you're watching live, feel free to use the chat to ask your questions. So Michael, um, there were a lot of announcements this week, in the, or the past week, actually. I think um, we are really um, getting closer to reInvent. And um, so, as always, we picked a few of them that are uh, interesting or that we found interesting and that we want to go uh, over together now. So what's the, the first um, announcement that caught your attention? Yes, Andrea. So the first one that I picked is that CloudRail now um, um, supports what's called a delegated administrator, which basically means that you can enable the uh, organization trail in a separate account that's not your root organization account. And this is very handy if you don't want anyone or not like a, at least a very small group of people to only have access to your org uh, root account. Um, while, for example, the security folks um, can use the security account to manage things like the cloud trail and organizational cloud trail. Um, so that's a tiny change, at least for, for us, from, from for users, but it, it is great in, in managing um, large deployments with many accounts. Okay, Michael, so let me take over with the next one. So um, we have a new region uh, open in Switzerland. So this is actually very close to where we live. So we, we both live in the south of Germany. So Switzerland is not too far away. Uh, so we are uh, happy to um, have a new option nearby here, which is EU Central 2 uh, in Switzerland, which is, by the way, a very uh, nice country to travel to <laughs> if you haven't done so. That's right. So the only thing that I can imagine that is one of the most expensive regions, <laughs> but I haven't yeah, so, checked the prices. So yeah, that maybe I, I didn't check the prices. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, so if you ever um, plan to travel to Switzerland, it's uh, very well known for chocolate and watches. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so that's really and cheese, right? cheese as well. Yeah. So yeah. very, very, very nice little country with um, uh, with mountains and everything. Very cool. And now. AWS yeah. is there as well with the region. All right. So the next one that I uh, had a look at is um, a new service, Andreas, and it is called Resource Explorer. And it it actually does more or less what the name implies. It, it helps you to find your AWS resources <laughs> in your AWS account. And the cool thing is that this works cross region. So you can set it up in a way that you can search um, or basically get a few of all your resources from all your regions in a single account. It doesn't work cross-account yet, so there's no kind of org view of an, um, uh, a resource explorer yet, but this is, I mean, one of the things that I would like to see in the future. The big problem, Andreas, with Resource Explorer is, I mean, you probably imagine you see everything in Resource Explorer, right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and turns out that's not the case. So <laughs> it, it supports only uh, some resource types. And I counted it. <laughs> it. It includes resource types of 18 services. And I think we have over 200 services Ooh, wow. at the moment. So you can probably see the big problem of the, <laughs> the announcement at the moment. Yeah. So 
as always, this is, I think this is really frustrating because all those services, when they are not working on all resources, they get almost, I wouldn't say totally useless, but I will, I will never try to search a resource in there because I never know if the service is supported or not. So I think that's yeah. really unfortunate. I mean, yeah, the problem is probably you use it a couple of times and then, I mean, if it doesn't find what you're looking for, you're, yeah. uh, you're not checking again in half a year if it's better or not. So, yeah. But let's see. I mean, I hope they have a plan to add the, the other services to kind of, kind of convince them to integrate into that service as well. Yes. Let's see how that goes. Um, I mean, the cool thing, or not cool thing, but the, the interesting thing is that we have uh, similar um, services. Like there is a service or it's a capability called resource groups. Mm. It kind of does the same thing. Uh, it also lacks support for most of the <laughs> services, and I, I hope that this is not becoming the same kind of thing. Uh, but what you can do with the service, Andreas, you can uh, basically search by name, uh, ID, or the ARM, or even tags, um, and you can also customize this a little bit. So, for example, if you don't want anyone to search on your tags or something, there is some way to kind of create views to protect um Maybe some tags uh, that are not visible or values are not visible to everyone that has access to Resource Explorer. So um, that's it. Um, and I think, Andreas, you have some um, like experience using it in, in, in the real world, yeah, right? Yeah, so I just tried it this morning because um, one of my routines is that I check a few DynamoDB tables um, once a week. Um, and uh, I actually, I know the table name very well, so I know exactly how the table uh, is named, and I try to type that in into the search bar. So I think what's important is one part of the service is integrated into the management console search bar, so you can search there for resources. And I tried to search for the DynamoDB table, and I typed in the exact name. And the frustrating thing was the table did not show up. It showed me a huge list of Lambda functions that have similar things in their name but really mm -hmm. the resource that was really named exactly the, my, my ser the search team that i used did not show up at all so this was i don't know this is a little frustrating experience so it seems like if you have many yeah. resources that start with the same or that use the same naming scheme and they all start with this with the similar name that um it's very hard to find one of those um with mm -hmm. the help of that so yeah it was useless for that activity uh, and then I looked into the service itself, the Resource Explorer. I op opened up Resource Explorer, typed in my search query there. And then there was a huge list with resources with that name. And I found DynamoDB, the DynamoDB table in there. But I think in the management console, it just caps the number of um, results that it shows. And therefore, it's not really usable for mm -hmm. this situation. Um, I think probably many are running into that because usually... You use a naming scheme for your naming your resources, uh, so you will probably run into that as well. Okay, so I think, Michael, the, the next, I think this was probably the biggest announcement this week, is Amazon EventBridge launches a new scheduler. So uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about that, and I think we had even had a question from JJ, if I remember correctly, who was asking about how to implement a, a serverless scheduler for thousands of uh, schedules and jobs. And we, our answer was, there is no really good way to do so. <laughs> you need to um, implement that in yourself, and it's not that easy to, to get it right. So now the good news is we have uh, a scheduler functionality built into EventBridge. Um, before that, we had the possibility to define an event rule, and you could have a, a schedule uh, in there. But I think this, the problem with that is it was limited to, I don't know, 
uh, a few uh, schedules that you could have. So now with the scheduler functionality, um, we have a really scalable scheduler that scales to thousands uh, or even more um, schedules. Um, of course, this comes um, with, um, yeah, if you have a highly scalable system, you often have that uh, thing that um, it guarantees at least once event delivery to targets. So which means um, if you have, let's say, a scheduler that triggers a Lambda function once a day, it's possible that the scheduler does not trigger it only once, but twice or three times or in, in rare situations. So there's no guarantee that you have exactly once, it's at least once. So I think that's something you need to keep in mind when implementing um, by using the scheduler. Um, besides that, um, um, we have SQS that letter queues. So in case the scheduler cannot invoke your target, which could be a Lambda function, SNS, Topic, SQS, and many other um, AWS services, by the way, um, then you could you can use a SQS that letter queue. Basically, then the scheduler sends the message it could not deliver to the queue, and you can pick it up from there. Yeah, so that's what I uh, found out so far. I was a little confused about the uh, infrastructure as code support. So... I could not find the CloudFormation resources. Um, then you sent me a link <laughs> to a resource in CloudFormation, which seems not, I don't know, probably it's not yet released. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. So it's not coming up when you search it in the documentation. It's not in the change log, but there is already um, a document uh, page in the documentation uh, with the CloudFormation resource. So it's probably coming soon. I don't know. And I could not find anything in Terraform yet, but it's probably only a few days uh, until we get that. Um, yeah. So do you have any thoughts on the new scheduler and do you think we can benefit yeah. from it? Yeah, so the cool thing is that we, we can actually use it uh, um, because we, we use um, something um, uh, similar at the moment and we implement it with uh, step functions. So in in our chatbot marbot we have a feature that when an alert arrives um, we basically escalate this to the first user and if the user does not acknowledge the alert within five minutes we escalate to the second user so this is a timer five minute timer mm -hmm. and when we started we implemented this with an sqs message with a delay mm -hmm. so we basically sent a message to an sqsq and and, and configured it in a way that it is delivered in five minutes then we switch to step functions um, where we basically sleep for five minutes and then we invoke something. And now I think we can actually um, switch to the implementation that actually does what we want. It, it, it is kind of starting a timer for us and this is great. Um, and, and I think we should migrate this just for um, the sake of, of um, doing mm -hmm. it. So there's no big benefit, but it's cool. Mm -hmm. um, so that's cool. Um, one thing that I noticed because I looked into it, if the, how, how hard the migration is. So we have first CloudFormation support is, is not yet fully rolled out. Uh, so I haven't tried it if I can deploy mm -hmm. it, but the documentation is kind of, I mean, you can find it in Google, but it's not in the navigation bar, for mm -hmm. example. So I, I think it's not fully rolled out there. So I, I, I haven't tried it, um, if it works actually or not. But the problem is that monitoring is actually not so easy mm -hmm. because the only way to know that the timer kind of failed is that it shows up in the dead letter queue. But you can also have retries and things like that. And by default, it retries, um, I think, well, I don't know, 185 times or something and, and for 25, uh, 24 hours. 
So you only notice after 24 hours that something is wrong. <laughs> so it would be cool if you could notice that before, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, you can definitely configure the retry. You can also like fail it faster and things like that. But yeah, I would like to see at least the CloudWatch metric or CloudWatch, um, sorry, an event bridge event uh, if a task fails. Mm. Um, yeah, the other thing to notice is that this is not deployed to all regions. So keep that in mind. It is available in nine regions. Um, and I mean, I will not read the list because no one can, can really remember <laughs> that. But um, check the region. Oh. So um, if, if you're using, um, if you want to use this, um, it's, it's not available in all the regions. I think we are 24 regions now and it's only available in nine of them. So yeah, I think that's what I have to say, Andreas. Um, okay. So let's go on to the next one, right? Absolutely. Um, the the next release is is for the people using the ECS service, the Elastic Container Service, the um, orchestrator for containers on AWS. And what you can do now uh, is you can um, prevent a task from being stopped um, due to, uh, for example, a scaling event or a deployment. So, for example, imagine uh, you mentioned that before, right, Andreas? Uh, in um, your uh, installation of um, Mastodon, there is a sidekick worker. And it, it's really uncool to terminate the sidekick worker while it does something important. So what you want to do is you basically want to wait until it's kind of not working on any jobs and then you will kind of do the deployment. And what you can do is basically you can use um, the container agent endpoint and that's something, it's kind of, if you're from the EC2 world, then this is kind of the metadata service for containers. And it's kind of something reachable on a... Um, it's not really remote uh, it's kind of local and you can invoke this api and basically tell it okay i'm i'm working now don't don't kill me and you can set um a timeout basically so how long this should be protected from a scale in and it goes up to two uh, two days 48 hours and then when you are done on working on the job you can tell the api okay i'm done you I, i'm not protected anymore please uh, if 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 there's anything going on scale in or deployment then do it now and that's cool. Um, and there's also like a real ECS API. Like to, you can also do this remotely from the outside, but you can also do it from the inside. And that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so that, that's at least my, my thought. So Andreas, what do you think about this uh, feature? Yeah, so um, I think as we, as you mentioned, it's, it's very good to have that possibility um, because um, this was definitely missing and there were no good workarounds. Um, so one thing that I'm... Um, not yet sure on how to get that uh, right is so if you have for example a worker that processes a job and you set the scale-in protection for that worker so that it can complete the job um, what i don't know is how do you know um, basically <laughs> when to release um, your scale-in protection so let's say you block it for an hour um, and your worker runs and it picks new jobs from the queue. So how do you make sure it does not pick up new jobs but only work on those um, that um, it's already working on so, so that you can uh, complete the deployment? So that's what I'm thinking of. So, so assume you're doing a deployment and yeah, you have a task running. So how does the task know that it blocks the deployment? <laughs> so that's a little... Uh no, yeah, I think that like the way to think about it is is in the other way around. So what you will do is you will not block this for one hour. You will block it. You will start blocking it. You will do the mm. job, and then you will unblock it. And before you pick up the next job, it either is killed or it still runs. Yeah, but do you think that this is <laughs> working? Because the question is, how often does ECS try to terminate the worker? Is it 
just i don't know yeah that's what i'm <laughs> I, I think it probably will not work for small tasks i mean if mm. you, your task kind of requires a couple of milliseconds to work on of then course. i'm not sure if it's going know. to work, yeah. Work. But, yeah yeah so the interesting thing is if you after an hour finish the job and you release basically yeah. the thing how long do you have to wait until you can yeah plug it again so this was my question yeah, I'm not sure. There is some some events. I've, I've seen that there are some ECS events that tell you when a deployment could not be executed because of um, scale in protected tasks. But this mm -hmm. doesn't really help as well. What would be really cool is if the um, the agent API, the container agent API, would basically tell you uh, you we tried to <laughs> to uh, scale you down or or replace you because of a deployment, but we could not. So this would be a cool mm -hmm. uh, state that we uh, that we could have over the API. But yeah, but maybe something uh, is coming up for that. I see, yeah. Okay, um, let me proceed with the the last um, announcement on my list, uh, which is um, RDS now supports the new general purpose GP3 storage volumes. So, <laughs> so the new general purpose GP3 storage volumes that have been around since December 2020, <laughs> so two years now. So it took two years until we go get these um, new volume types with RDS. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, what's the deal about those? So I basically reread my blog post <laughs> that I've written um, uh, two years ago about the GP3 volumes. And um, so first of all, uh, general purpose means basically you have um, um, uh, volumes that adapt to your workload. So you have with GP2, you have those burstable volumes that have a baseline capacity and then you can burst beyond that. Um, so that's a little different with um, GP3 um, because what you get there is um, you get um, the 3000 IOPS um, that is the the, the the burst, the maximum burst performance is what you get with a GP3 uh, out of the box. And then um, you can increase that throughput even higher by um, yeah, paying for the provision throughput basically then. So that's different than GP2 works. There, the volume size basically um, modifies the baseline and uh, burst performance of your uh, volumes. So those work a little different. Um, and then, so that is important to know. So in theory, it makes sense to switch from GP2 to GP3 because you get the same performance. Um, 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 you get basically what the burst... You, the, the burst of GP, GP2 is what you get as the uh, performance of your GP3 volume. So that makes sense. At least for the smaller volumes below, I think the, the, the thing here is the 300, um, around 300 gigabyte. Um, because if you exceed that, you even get a little bit more um, bandwidth with uh, GP2 volumes. But that's, yeah, so, uh, that's a detail uh, that we maybe not have to mention here. And um, I think then the question is, so GP3 is basically a little, mm, it's a, a mixture of GP2. <laughs> and then what we have as, as well is um, IO2, which is basically provisioned IOPS for your volumes. And um, the question then is, so if I can also provision my throughput for GP3 volumes, what's the difference to IO2 volumes then? 
And the answer to that is that IO2 volumes, and uh, IO1 is probably the same, they, they really guarantee the throughput. So they guarantee that the bandwidth and the throughput is available to your storage from your, from your instance. And with GP3, there is no such guarantee. So you can provision that and you, you will probably very likely get that throughput, but you don't have a guarantee for that. So I think that's the difference. And that also affects things like latencies and stuff. So actually, you are sharing the resource with more other customers and yes, there's no dedicated um, capacity for that f uh, just for you. I think that's the main difference. And another difference between GP3 and IO2 is um, the durability of your data. So IO2 offers uh, higher durability. Um, I don't know if that, that might be important or not, but uh, that's how it is. That's the specification. So yeah, so we will link... Um, um, our blog post about uh, GP3 volumes. I think it's um, an interesting read again <laughs> when it comes now to RDS. And, um, but then I looked into one interesting thing, which is the pricing. <laughs> so EBS for EC2, um, GP3 is 20% um, cheaper than GP2. So the storage costs you 20% less when you switch from GP2 to GP3. That's significant. That's why many of those uh, cost optimization consultants tell you you should switch those uh, volume types. Um, but that's not true for RDS because um, as far as I understood the pricing with RDS, uh, GP3 costs the same or even a little more uh, depending on what you have to provision um, additional to the, the baseline throughput um, than GP2 uh, volumes. So that's, I don't know why this is the case, but that's how it is. And what I, what I also learned while I checked this is that um, RDS charges basically more for the storage than EC2 with EBS. So I always thought the only difference is in the instance type pricing, comp RDS compared to EC2, but that's not the case. It's also the storage that is um, um, costing you more uh, with RDS than with EBS and EC2. Yeah, so I think in general, the, my advice is it, it might make sense to switch from GP2 to GP3 for smaller database instances because you might ben benefit from the, um, from the, um, the baseline performance. And also I think what might be interesting is to use GP3 as an alternative to the more expensive provisioned uh, instances based on IO1. Uh, because the provisioned volume type IO2 is not yet available on RDS at all. So, yeah. So, But mm -hmm. if you have those running and you don't really need the full-blown enterprise guarantee uh, uh, volume types, then it might be an interesting alternative to use GP3 as an alternative to IO as well. Okay, I see, Andreas. So before we dive into what we learned, Andreas, last week, uh, I, will, um, ha or I have some uh, interesting uh, chops uh, that might be of interest to you if you are working in the AWS space, because as we all know, AWS expertise is in high demand. So what we have is that our partner TechRacer is hiring a cloud consultant, and the focus here is on machine learning and analytics. So if you're interested in things like S3, Athena, EMR, SageMaker, or any other uh, machine learning or analytics series on AWS, then this is probably the right job for you. You can join TechRacer in 
um, Germany. So this is Hannover, Duisburg, Frankfurt, Hamburg, Munich, or in uh, Vienna, Lisbon, or Lucerne. And our second partner is Demikon, and they are hiring a senior lead full-stack developer. And this is a remote position from Germany or the uh, EU. So if you are uh, expert in or want to become an expert in JavaScript, TypeScript, Node.js and AWS, then this is uh, something that you can check out in more detail. So you will find links to the positions in the show notes and you can have like or get all the details there. So um, yeah, check that out if you're looking for uh, something like that. Yeah. So and if you, by the way, if you want to get an insight how it is to work at TechRacer and oh, Demicon, yeah. you could check out our Builders Diary series where we have um, guests in the show from both uh, companies and they share uh, basically insights into their day-to-day -day work. So check that out as well if you're uh, interested. Okay, Michael. So um, next, um, I want to quickly talk about uh, uh, a small thing that I learned uh, last week. I le learned it in a very painful way. <laughs> so I'm using TerraGrunt in one of our projects right now. And TerraGrunt is basically a tool that uh, simplifies um, rolling out Terraform, especially if you're using Terraform modules to different environments. So it's basically kind of a wrapper around Terraform. And um, with TerraCrunt, you can have a hierarchy in your uh, t uh, Terraform configuration files. So um, it's very common to have a folder called live, and then you have um, subfolders, for example, for uh, different regions or different um, environments like test and prod and so on. So you build your hierarchy and you can, um, in some extent, you can inherit um, basically properties from uh, all these different levels in your project. Um, and what I learned is um, there's a thing called TerraCrunt uh, HCL files, which is basically the configuration for TerraCrunt. And what I didn't know is uh, you can only inherit this configuration um, one from, from one level above. So it doesn't matter how many levels uh, you need to go up, but you can only inherit one file from basically the, the the parent folders. And I added a new TerraCrunt uh, configuration file into uh, an, uh, another hierarchy in my folders. And this resulted in, I did not have a Terraform remote configuration anymore because it didn't pick up the file uh, at the very root, at the basically at the root uh, level. And when I then run my pipeline, I was just every time starting with a, fr a fresh new Terraform local state, which meant I was creating all my resources every time I committed a change <laughs> into my repository. And then I had to clean up everything because all those remote state files were lost because, yeah, GitHub Actions did not keep them. So this was a little frustrating experience. So important to know when you use TerraCrunt. Uh, if you use those includes for your Terraform configuration, uh, keep in mind that this works only for uh, one level above. You can only include one other configuration file and not going uh, through the whole hierarchy. Okay, Andreas, I see. So we have uh, one question in the chat so far, um, and this is from Jonas. And he um, basically asks if we see a big uh, interest in the new and upcoming local zones 
because for example recently we saw a new or uh, new zones in in, in Poland uh, Warsaw and in Hamburg Germany and what he also adds is that they are like 35% more expensive for example the EC2 costs uh, compared to if you just go for the normal region mm. So do you have any uh, insights into local zones? Andreas? No. So actually, I didn't even know about the higher costs because I never looked into um, those local zones into detail because I, I, have no, I have no need for it. I don't have even an idea what I could do with it. So I understand that you use it to basically reduce the latencies to your clients as much as possible by deploying um, closer to the edge. But actually, I... I, I'm not deploying any workloads that are in need of that, so I didn't use it. I think it's not only the the higher costs; you also have other problems because um, there are not all services available there and stuff. So it's basically easy too, and a few others. Um, so yeah, I, actually, I never used it. Did you? No, Me I think either. we don't have a client using them, and no. I actually I also don't get what what they are good for. But I mean, there seems to be some interest in them because yeah, they probably continue to deploy. Yeah, them. so I understand <laughs> that if you really, latency really, really matters and you have to optimize for every millisecond or even below that, then that's probably important. But um, yeah. Uh, okay, thank you very much. That's it for um, now. We will be back next week. Um, in the meantime, subscribe to our newsletter, our podcast or this YouTube channel to make sure you're not missing the upcoming shows. And, of course, we want to thank our supporters who make this show possible. Um, please consider supporting our work as well with a recurring or one-time donation. You will find details and links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for listening and watching. Bye. Bye. Thank you.